Well, another way that we deal with work in a fallen world is the question of ex- did you want to say something? Oh, is the question of excellence. Excellence. Another way that sin works itself out in the, is in the very concept of excellence. So I'd like to consider us, uh, let us consider a word just for a few minutes today. It's a word that permeates our culture like the air that we breathe, especially in the working world. It's a word that restaurants describe, uh, use to describe their food. A word that salespeople use to describe their service. A word that artists use to describe their work. How can three very different working environments use the same word in so many different ways? Well, it helps when we understand the word. The word is excellence. When we think of excellence, we might think of particular skill or brilliance. If you look at the work of Vincent van Gogh, do you know who Vincent van Gogh is? You know, the expressionist artist, right? Uh, are you familiar with his painting, Starry Night? Starry Night's exceptional. You know, Starry Night is, uh, you know, this, it's not realistic, is it? I mean, it's not like a photograph, but it's this expressive painting with all these vivid colors, and it just takes you by uh, uh, it, its, its vision, and you just absolutely are enamored with it, right? But when, I'll be honest, when I first saw Starry Night, I was a little kid, and I thought, I could do that. <laughs> you know why? Because I was a kid, I did finger painting. That looks like finger painting to me, right? Now, what you don't know about uh, Starry Night is that is not the only way that Van Gogh worked. When you looked at his corpus of, of art, one of the things that you think is, well, he can finger paint. Uh, what's the big deal? But actually, if you look at his corpus, one of the things that you find is um, Van Gogh was a, was a brilliant realist painter. In other words, he could paint you or draw you as if you were a, it was as if it was a photograph, right? So it's not that he, oh, was just getting around the, uh, the realism to get to this finger painting stuff. No, his work, he went beyond the real into expressivism, right? He has this exceptional skill, frankly, in all media types, whether it's line on pencil, uh, realism in different kind of types of painting in different mediums, whether it's uh, print um, or if it's chalk or watercolor, it makes no difference. He was an excellent artist. He has excellence in all media types. Now, maybe you just think, well, that's a natural gift. I don't have that, right? But excellence. Do we have the same kind of drive to be excellent in all things, especially in our work as Van Gogh? It certainly makes us think of, of being excellent and it inspires us to do so, but we must be careful. In their very insightful book, Resurrecting Excellence, Gregory Jones and Ke- Kevin Armstrong say this about excellence. And here's the quote. Excellence has become the holy grail of American culture. It's the aspiration of the athlete the benchmark in business and industry, the essence of personal coaching. This culturally conceived excellence is strongly oriented toward success, as evidenced by the thriving successories industry that celebrates and markets its pursuit. They go on to say this, 
Such excellence promotes individual effort and puts a premium on exceptional skill or competence. And they conclude by saying, in a world of make-or-break rankings, mission statements, business plans, excellence is often, too often, interpreted as the capacity to come out ahead, to exercise strength at the expense of weakness, indeed to leave encumbering weakness behind. Jones and Armstrong suggest that this dog-eat-dog of, uh, of view of excellence that highlights personal achievement against others is wrong and wrong-headed. In fact, they suggest that this definition of excellence is rooted in the wrong foundation. Because this foundation of excellence, this outworking of excellence, especially in the workplace, leads to frustration, selfishness, and resentment. This is true even in the workplace of ministry. We seek better and better, more and more, when the life of Christ is designed to seek more of the Lord and less of ourselves. Now, if we don't want to achieve that definition of excellence, more, 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 to be the best, what definition should we go to? An alternative, of course, is to set one's sights really low, expecting nothing and doing nothing. Instead of this, uh, instead of that former vision of excellence, we have another vision of excellence. It frankly is defined as mediocrity. One of my friends, Dr. Jay Strack, describes mediocrity as going halfway up the hill. Instead of this dog-eat-dog, type A, you know, alpha personality, I'm going to achieve excellence. Christians can fall into the trap of just doing this, going halfway up the hill. Or as he put on a church billboard as a young, just-saved pastor, don't serve God half-blanked. <laughs> he, no, he, uh, he was saved in the Jesus movement, right? When we think of excellence as Christians, our first port of call oftentimes is to go to all sorts of different places. But I would like to suggest for us, our first port of call should not be Leadership Magazine, Fast Company, Barna Research, John Maxwell, Forbes, Thriving Churches, the Gospel Coalition, or any of these, as good as each of those are. When we think of excellence and what it means, we need to look first and foremost at the person of Jesus. This danger of looking to other places can lead us to some very troubling ideas. The newest leadership book might be useful. Let me give you an example. Has anybody read the book Good to Great by Jim Collins? Great book, eh? Really helpful. But Jim Collins does not find his foundation for excellence in Jesus, does he? Look at how he describes excellence. And he's, he's interested in, obviously, the workplace here. Those who turn, and this is the quote, those who turn good into great are motivated by a deep creative urge and inner compulsion for sheer unadulterated excellence for its own sake. 
Those who perpetuate mediocrity, in contrast, are motivated by more of the fear of being left behind. So in his definition of excellence, in this very useful book, Good to Great, what is his definition of excellence? An unadulterated, sheer compulsion for excellence for its own sake. Excellence for its own sake. As if there is a definition of excellence for its own sake. What does that even mean? You just do it because it's good. Right? Excellence. Well, actually, the scriptures give a different foundation. It's rooted in the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, this passage that we're about to look at shows us that Christ is the epitome of biblical excellence. Paul, in the letter to the Colossians, says it this way. So if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Paul says it this way. And of course, uh, you, you know that in this passage, uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, this is what is typically known as the Christ hymn. So in other words, in this letter to the Colossians, Paul is writing this letter, and in the, 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 the uh, first chapter, he feels compelled to insert what is probably a hymn that the church was singing, or they knew, or they recited. And he's like, how can I describe who Jesus, I know, that hymn, and I'll put it in there. And so that's what he does. This is a hymn, and this is what the hymn says. Colossians 1.15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is a fascinating passage of scripture because it gives us a picture of Christ from which we can define excellence. Excellence, we, should, we, we see from this passage, proceeds from the excellent Savior in whom all things hold together. And because of this, Christ is preeminent in everything. Our pursuit of excellent beings right our pursuit of excellence sorry our pursuit of excellence means that we don't find excellence in our own creativity or our own inner compulsion or even excellence for its own sake as interesting as that might be rather excellence begins in the preeminence of Christ who holds all of creation together this means our definition for excellence is founded in Christ and the gospel. Christ and the gospel. So what is the gospel? If we turn to, and, and uh, Nick read it last night, I, I, I just 
draw your attention to it once again, right? When you look at 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, this is what uh, Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now, what I want to draw out in this definition of, of, the, of the gospel is quite simply verse uh, uh, 3. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Why does Paul think it important to include in his definition of the gospel the word Christ? Any ideas? Why, why didn't he just say Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the gospel, uh, with scripture? Any ideas? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so it has to do with something with the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament vision of the Messiah who's to come. Now, this actually is very important. Because in the Old Testament, Christ is not just an idea, it's a king. The word in the Old Testament, Messiah, there's lots of messiahs in the Old Testament, right? But the Messiah Paul is referring to here is the king of Israel. And not just any old king. The, the one who dies for our sins. Well, where does he get that? Isaiah chapter 53, right? But is this king of Israel just any old king? Is this Messiah, the king of Israel, just any old king who dies for our sins? No. In Isaiah, the vision is very particular. The Messiah who dies for our sins is also the king of creation. This is a fascinating understanding. So Paul says that Jesus is Christ, the one who redeems us from our sin, but this is the king of creation. How do we understand the identity of Jesus? Well, Jesus is quite literally the king who renews creation itself. Look at how Paul describes Jesus in the Colossians Christ hymn. I want you to look at how many times the word all or all things is used in that hymn. Take a look. Talk amongst yourselves. How many times is the word all or all things used in Colossians 1, 15 to 20? When you have the idea, uh, when you count them up, shout it out. At least five. Right. Any others? Did you find more than that? Yes, seven. Yeah. Yeah. The Christ hymn affirms the bigness of Christ. What does Christ's work achieve? Well, Paul, in his, in his uh, definition of the gospel in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, is talking about the death for our sins, the redemption from sin, right? Forgiveness of sin, right? His death achieves that. But he uses the word Christ, so all of the kingship of Jesus, the bigness of Christ, is there as well, right? 
it's not just that this guy Jesus died for our sins. The fact that Paul calls him Christ helps us understand why it's this king who dies for our sins at all. The reality is, is Jesus is the Messiah, the king of creation, who redeems us by forgiving us of our sin. But the Colossians Christ hymn reminds us that, look, part of the gospel is the reconciliation of all things in Christ. And here's the deal, work included. Now, we can get this messed up. We can say the only way that I know Jesus, right, is because he died for my sins. And we forget that the one who died for your sins is also your Lord and Master. To illustrate this, suppose a couple is getting married. But in order to go through with the wedding, the husband, this future husband, the fiancé, needs a significant and insurmountable amount of business debt to get paid. The man's fiancé, who has endless wealth, is well off. Knowing the man could not formalize their relationship without the debts paid, the woman gladly, gladly and joyously pays his debts. The now husband is overcome. He tells his wife over and over and over how grateful he is to her. Oh, my dear, thank you. You've paid my debt. I'm eternally grateful. Of course, the wife simply responds each time, "It's it's my pleasure. I love paying your debt. You're my husband. I love it. And each year at their anniversary, the husband says, oh, my dear, you've paid my debt. I'm eternally grateful. And each time the wife responds, I love you. It's my joy and delight. Every year, every year, they say the same thing over and over. The husband persists in sharing his gratitude every time with his wife over the years. But after about 45 years of marriage, the husband says one more time, oh, you've paid my debt. I'm extremely grateful. At the 45th wedding anniversary, the wife looks at him and says, my dear, I've paid your debt, and I've said for 45 years, I love you. It's my joy and delight. This is what I wanted to do for years, that we could be married. But then she turns to her husband with eyes full of tears. And she says, you're right to thank me for for, for paying for your debts. As I said for ages, I'm glad to do it. But sweetie, don't you know there's more to me than just the person who paid your business debts? For crying out loud, sweetie, I'm your wife. All illustrations break apart, and this one does as well. But what I'm getting at is quite simply this. Jesus paid our debts, and this is what reconciles us to God. The blood of Christ is the substitution for our sin. That great transaction we should never diminish. But a lot of times what we forget is the great transaction made us into the bride of Christ. Now what that actually means is Christ doesn't just save us from our sin. He does that. 
he creates us and saves us for his lordship. He saves us from our sin so that we might be reconciled uh, to God, so that we might live under his lordship. This is the nature of the Christ. We are forgiven of our sins so that we might rightly live under the lordship of Christ. Those who would say that the death of Christ and the blood of Christ and the forgiveness that he offers is, is unimportant, those people are wrong. Because that's what gets us into the relationship in the, in the first place. So it becomes the constant reminder that as Luther knew so well, the blood of Christ is the doorway that we enter into again and again and again in our relationship with Jesus, right? But what that means is Jesus is not our get-out-of-hell-free card. It means that he is our Lord and Master, and what that means for us is that all things are being reconciled to God in Christ, who is the king of creation. So what might we say the gospel is systematically set in brief? It is quite simply this. Christ died to deliver the whole world from sin, us included. Christ lives to bring the whole world under his authority as king. If we were to put this in terms that resonate with you and me at this level, person-to-person -person level, I would say it this way. The gospel is this. Jesus died to save us from the death that is sin. But he lives so that we might live under his lordship. So how does this relate to excellence in all things? It's the living under his lordship that I want you and I to consider. If excellence is rooted in the foundation of Christ and his gospel, how should we understand excellence? Let me give you a definition of excellence. In light of Jesus and what he's done, here's my definition for excellence. Excellence means rightly living under the lordship of Christ in every area of life, work included in whom all things hold together and through whom the Father is glorified. Let me say this again. Excellence derives from rightly living under the Lordship of Christ in every area of life, in whom all things hold together and through whom the Father is glorified. What does this mean in essence? Excellence means setting the preeminence of Jesus on display in your work. Setting the preeminence of Jesus on display in your work. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 reminds us that Christ glorifies God in all things. He is the king of all things. All things hold together so that Jesus might have first place in some of your language in, your, in Colossians, it says that Christ might be preeminent in, in first things. Here's what excellence is in your workplace. Ready? Christ has first place in your job. Not you. Not more money. Not your name. Not your product. Christ has first place in your job. What this means is excellence is closely tied to holiness. And holiness is a spirit work, my friends. 
to achieve excellence, it means for you and I, even in our work, we're going to have to practice some self-denial. We're going to have to deny selfish ambition and allow Christ and, and the Spirit of God to do a changing work in our lives. One scholar says it this way, and he's applying uh, his work to the kind of work that I do. But he says, we go to this work with unselfish motives, not through ambition or foolish vanity. The jingling bells of publicity tempt only frivolous minds. Listen to what he says about ambition. Ambition offends eternal truth by subordinating truth to itself. Is it not a sacrilege to play with questions that dominate life and death, with mysterious nature with God, to achieve some literary or philosophical celebrity at the expense of the true and independently of the true? His point is quite simply this. We don't mess around in our work. If we are treating ourselves and celebrity and making my name great as the most important thing in my job, what he says is we're playing with fire. Excellence, like a gospel-centered life, begins with putting the preeminence of God on display. So let me just ask you quickly. I want you to think about this. What does excellence look like in your workplace? Now, it doesn't mean, obviously, you know, going halfway up the hill, being mediocre. And it doesn't mean, you know, sharing necessarily your faith 24-7. It might mean doing a good job because you want to please the one who's made you. It might mean treating one another with respect and honor because you recognize that God has created this person with intrinsic value as a creature, as a human being. And so you don't exploit them. It might mean making sure your product is the best product on the market. Why? Because you don't want to give a deficient product and not please the one who gave you hands to make the work. You see what I'm getting at here? It might mean telling the truth when it's easier to lie to your supervisors or tell a half-truth. Excellence means setting the preeminence of Christ on display in all of work because frankly, guess what? He's king of it already. It's his world, not ours. It's his work, not ours. He is preeminent in all things, the Colossians thing reminds us. So how do I achieve excellence in my workplace? I want to give you a few very practical suggestions. Excellence achieved in my work. Starting with repentance and confession. How do I achieve excellence in my workplace? You begin with repentance and confession. Here's the reality. The gospel reminds us we are broken in ways we could never imagine. We're far more broken and wicked than we could ever imagine ourselves to be. That means in your work right now and in mine, there are areas where we are rebellious against our maker and we don't even realize it. 
the gospel reminds us that Christ has died for those sins, right? But we enter into the knowledge of our sin with repentance and confession. The gospel, as I've said, is like a doorway that we go through again and again and again and again into a brave new world. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But the way that one entered into the kingdom is through repentance. Jesus says in Mark 1.14, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So friends, in our workplaces, we need to be people of humility and repentance and confession. Your workplace needs to be laid before God. Your brokenness as a sinner before God needs to be laid before God. Repent. The entrance into the lordship of Christ comes through confession. Excellence in every facet of our workplace means that we realize we are only creatures in a relationship with one another and with God because of the saving work of Jesus, not because we're awesome or skilled or technically good. Repentance grounds us again and again in the notion that Jesus is our Savior. Lord, redeem my work. Second, if we're to achieve excellence in our work, it demands that we recognize not only that Christ is our Savior, but Christ is our Lord. And let me be very pointed on this. Some of us means, uh, some of us might think that being a Christian in the workplace means that I share my faith. It does. And if you're not sharing your faith, you're, being in, uh, you're living in disobedience to the clear commands of Jesus. The proclamation of the gospel is the way people come to know Jesus, right? So you have to share your faith. But Christ's lordship is not only extended just to your words, is it? It's to your work as well. Christ is the Lord of your workplace. Paul is quite clear in the Colossians hymn. God reconciles all things to himself through Jesus, who is Redeemer, Savior, and Lord. The mundane you work you do, the mundane work you do in your, in your job, are you allowing Christ to exercise his rule over it? Or is that territory unimportant? Ah, Jesus, you don't care about that. Yes, he does. He's already Lord. The question is, are you recognizing his lordship in your work? Martin Luther King, who I like very much, says it this way. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets, even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Can you say that about your work, even if it's mundane? The preeminence of Christ demands it, my friends. Excellence is not found within. It's found at looking at our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in your work, is your excellence hitting that, that point, that, that goal? Oh, yes, now we have 200 students in our Ph.D. program. I am excellent. That's not good enough. 
Our measure should be the person of Christ, particularly his lordship exercised in a broken world. Your workplace and mine. Only then will we understand that excellence is rooted in Jesus. In this sense, we understand why Paul would say in Philippians 1.27, we should strive to make our conduct in all things worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, what I'd like to do is, is pray and then discuss this talk uh, together a little bit. Okay, so let me pray for us. Our Father, as we come to the issue of work, we realize that God's ambition is not why we do our work. Ambition is the enemy of your gospel. Lord, help us to remember that we serve you even as we do our work. So our ambition, is, if we have any, should be to set your name and your glory on display. Whether we're streeping sweets or changing diapers or cleaning toilets or working on Wall Street. Our work, Lord, we give to you and ask, God, that you would multiply it so that the world might know who you are, how you save, and how you're bringing all of creation back to yourself. In Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.